man once gave a great banquet and invited a lot of guests. When the banquet was ready, he sent a servant to tell the guests, Everything is ready. Please come. One guest after another started making excuses. The first one said, I bought some land and I've got to look it over. Please excuse me. Another guest said, I bought five teams of oxen and I need to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another guest said, I've just gotten married and I can't be there. The servant told his master what happened. The master became so angry that he said, Go as fast as you can to every street and alley in town. Bring in everyone who is poor or crippled or blind or lame. When the servant returned, he said, Master, I've done what you told me, and there is still plenty of room for more people. His master then told him, Go out along the back roads and fence rows and make people come in so that my house will be full. Not one of the guests I first invited will even get a bite of my food. Hope My name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here. That is the trippiest Bible video I've ever seen in my life. So if you're watching that, you're wondering, like, has Danny lost it? Yes, but not just because of that video there. But uh, it, it helps us set the table for diving into our reading today. Now, if you follow closely there, and maybe if you studied the Bible before, you know that the script of that video follows a passage from Luke chapter 14. But this seems to be an illustration that Jesus uses a few different times that maybe he goes back to in a few different places in a few different contexts. And he uses the same illustration of this great wedding banquet in Luke chapter, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 22. And that's where we find ourselves today. This is the last week of our Bible series called Matthew Connects the Dots. We're in a whole year-long series called The Whole Holy Bible in a Year. I'm so excited about how many of you are excited about this series and about this year and reading the Bible together. Uh, you heard an announcement, so I just want to say it one more time. This week, we've got our monthly Bible class. I hope that you come to that. Last, week we, or last month, we set up 28 chairs thinking that would be more than enough, and over 75 of you came. And we had a really good time. So I hope that you plan to be there on Thursday night as well. But as we conclude tonight, or as we conclude today in this series, I want to pose this question. Who will be in heaven? Because that's what Jesus is talking about in this parable. Now, I think that that's a good question for us to ask. And it's nice that Jesus would pose this question for us and seem to answer it in the parable because it's on our mind a lot, isn't it? I read this in Gallup. According to Gallup, 74% of U.S. Americans believe in life after death and 42% are anxious about God forgiving their sins. So maybe the question isn't necessarily is heaven for real, but the question that most of us are really asking is, is heaven for me? Because a lot of us, we believe in this idea of life after death, and yet we're bothered by, would it actually be for me? Now, I think that there's something ironic about that, because the 42% of people who are anxious about God's mercy and about God's grace, and if it's for them, are maybe typically the people who would have the least to be worried about when it comes to, did they live a life that was decent or not? I'm not saying that living a life of decency is what gets you into heaven, but if you think about maybe the worst and cruelest dictators that have ever lived, 
they probably don't carry the self-awareness to recognize their need for mercy or their need for grace. So I just want to say this. If you're worried about grace, if you're worried about mercy, you're probably finding yourself in a pretty decent place. And you're probably a self-aware person. That has to do with your relationships with other people. But again, it's not that that gets you into heaven. Now, Jesus is saying this parable in Matthew chapter 22 to a group of people who are merciless, who don't consider grace, who don't have this self-awareness to recognize some of their blind spots. Now, maybe they're not quite as bad as some of the worst dictators in the world, but he's talking to temple officials. We know this because in Matthew chapter 21, it gives us the scene and the setting. And after Jesus has this first interaction in this particular instance with the uh, temple officials, he's going to go into three different stories about inviting people into heaven. Now, the temple officials, they really did not like Jesus. They had a huge problem with him. And we see that in Matthew chapter 21 when they ask, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? In other words, what they're saying to him is, who do you think you are? Are they asking that randomly? No, of course they're not asking that randomly. If you were to go back just even a little bit further at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's our Palm Sunday holiday. And the first thing that he does when he walks into Jerusalem and people are praising him, being like, Jesus is this amazing guy. We love him so much. He walks into the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Now we cannot possibly underestimate the rage and the fuming that Jesus is bringing into this temple. In another account, it says that he's tying up ropes on the spot and chasing them out, whipping them as he's, he's sending them from the temple. Why is he so angry and why is he so upset? I, I think that the key right there is, is simple. People are there and they're buying and they're selling sacrifices as if God's love is something that could be purchased. Now, also, we know from history that would tell us that when, when sacrifices were sold in a temple setting like that, oftentimes there were people who were coming from a foreign land. And in, as they came from a foreign land, they would have to exchange their currency to that, that context in that society's currency. And the people who were selling would take advantage of those people from a foreign land. And they would tell them, oh, no, no, that's, that's not quite enough. And, and they wouldn't know. And so they'd just have to pay more and more and more. Jesus saw this abuse, and he wasn't okay with it. And even more so, he goes on to say, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus has some of the best trash talking. Don't you underestimate how cool he is either. Oftentimes he calls people sons of vipers and, and all different sorts of things like that. Why, why is he so upset? And why is he so mad? And, and why is it that this instance made the temple officials so mad at him? They're asking him, who do you think that you are? After Jesus has sent out these people who are telling others you need to purchase your way into God's favor, it says that this happened. It says that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus sent away the oppressors. Jesus sent away those who were excluding others and he welcomed in the unwelcomed. This was deeply offensive to the temple officials. The only person who could come into the temple and have more authority over that place than the temple officials was God himself. Matthew is once again here connecting the dots. All January long, we've been seeing how Matthew connects the dots to show us that Jesus is the continuation of the Old Testament scriptures. This Messiah and this Savior 
that the Old Testament prophesied about and promised would come to save the world and God's people. Matthew's saying it's Jesus. If we go back a slide just one more time, I want to show that again. Jesus, when he's saying the scriptures declare my temple will be called the house of prayer, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. He is saying something that only God says. Over the temple, he's saying it's God's house, and he's saying that's mine. And then again, if we go forward a slide, when he welcomes in the unwelcomed and he's healing them, he's fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 35. And the temple officials are seeing this, and they see how it's getting out of hand. And they're asking Jesus, who do you think you are, God? And Jesus is saying back, yes. Jesus gets to invite into the temple who he wants to invite into the temple because it's his temple. And that helps us understand when Jesus is about to tell these stories about who gets into heaven, he gets to invite into heaven who he wants to invite to heaven because it's also his heaven. Not only is he a person who gets to walk over and have authority over the temple as God, he has authority over heaven and earth. And he's demonstrating that here. And it really, really angered these temple officials who would say, I don't need mercy. I don't need grace. I'm not concerned about life after death because I put in the work. I've paid the price. I've made my place. I belong. And here comes Jesus talking about grace. Talking about welcoming the unwelcome. And how bothered were the temple officials? Enough to try to trap Jesus and corner him and say, Who do you think you are? God? Yes. Heaven comes with an invitation. And I want to talk about that as I talk about who Jesus invites into heaven. And how he invites into heaven. Before I go into that, I want to say this really clearly. I'm going to talk about three different components of heaven's invitation, the way that Jesus invites us into heaven. And I want you to know, this is not a three-step process for how to get into heaven. These are three different components of heaven's invitation so that when we're seeing these things and we're noticing these things, we're able to embrace it better. We're able to find peace in it better. To know that when we're experiencing these things and when we see these things and how we see these things, it brings us peace knowing that we do belong in the kingdom of God. The first thing about heaven's invitation that we learn in this story that Jesus is about to tell in Matthew chapter 22 is that heaven's invitation is a calling. It's a calling. It calls out to people. We see this when Jesus introduces the story in Matthew chapter 22 about inviting people into, the, into heaven. In Matthew chapter 22 it says, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. If you've read different parts of the Bible before, maybe you know that wedding feast, wedding banquet is a theme that shows up all over the place. A feast, a meal, was a place for people to come together and have community. You would have meals with people that you wanted to share life with. It was deeply symbolic in their culture. Now, even deeper than that was if you were to have a very special meal, one that celebrated your family, one that celebrated your legacy, you were very intentional about who you invited to this table. And Jesus is saying there was a great wedding feast for this king's son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. Now, he's inviting those who are already invited. I think that this is just a really quick, important opportunity for us to notice that in that context and in those days, in order to prepare a party like this, it took a long time. I mean, today, wedding planning takes a very long time. Some of you in this room are going through it right now. Abby and I, we've been through it. God bless you. 
It's not easy. It's not always fun, is it? Sometimes you fight with your fiance about what's supposed to be the best day of your life. Just a side note that somebody told me when we were preparing, it's so much better to prepare for the marriage than for the wedding. I'm just going to say that, but nonetheless, just a side note. Now, in those days, you would send out, let's say, a save the date, right? You would let people know it's coming and you are invited to it. Anybody here ever gotten a save the date? And then after the save the date comes the RSVP. Hey, come on, just let us know if you're going to be there, right? And they send you this in the mail. And, and then you think to yourself, I'm, I'm going to fill that out really quick. I'm going to send it right back. And you know what? In fact, to make sure that I do that, I'm just going to magnet, on the, magnet it on the refrigerator, right? And then a day passes. And then a week passes. And then a month passes. And then you get that email saying, hey, remember to RSVP to our wedding. And then you get the text message, hey, you're the only one who has an RSVP to our wedding. Just me, anybody, please? I know some of you because Abby and I had to contact you about our wedding, for goodness sake. Anyway, sorry, this, that got too personal. And it's just kind of being put off, right? And now the king is saying, but the feast is prepared. It's ready. It's time for you to come. Now keep in mind, this is a king sending out the invitation. You don't dismiss the invitation of a king, but to everybody's shock who's listening to this story, Jesus says, they all refused to come. They all said, nah, we're good. Let's continue in the story that Jesus is telling here. So he sent other servants come to the banquet. The king refused to say, oh, well, I'll just settle with you rejecting my invitation. When it comes to the invitation of God, this calling that God puts out in your life, and the most important calling that God puts in your life is, I want you to be in my kingdom. I want you to be a part of my family. He refuses to let it be a one-time mistake for you to let it go. God will consistently show up in your life. He will consistently send the invitation. He will consistently send his invitation through signs, through people, maybe even through wonders, or maybe even just a feeling in your heart. He keeps on sending the invitation. But it's interesting that even when we keep on getting that notification, it just stays on our refrigerator sometimes. And we're just, wait I mean, what are we waiting for? And then it says the guests he had invited ignored those servants who had sent the more invitations, and they went their own way. One to his farm, another to his business. Others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. Wow, that escalated pretty quickly, right? How, like, how did this happen? Now, keep in mind, take a look at who Jesus said was invited to this wedding feast. He is saying that it's somebody who owns land. It's somebody who owns a business. It's someone who obviously has some sort of power or control to influence others so that they'd be able to gang up on and hurt someone who just came into their life. Jesus is saying that these people who are invited are the well-to-do people, right? The people you might expect. And these are the people who are rejecting the invitation. And whoa, that makes me stop in my tracks. Because what are the things that keep us from seeing heaven, from receiving the invitation of heaven? It's the distractions. I want you to take a look at a few of these right here. Maybe sometimes in our lives we get confused, right? Maybe heaven's right here, right? Maybe, maybe heaven's what I've got right now. And we see it. We get distracted from heaven with our indifferent complacency and with our privileged ignorance. Now, those two things go together, and I kind of chose fancy words for, for how to describe those, but, but, but I want to expand on it just a little bit. 
So many of us miss out on what God has for our life because we're way too comfortable. Because way too many things are going right in our life. There was this famous journalist from the 20th century in England. His name was Bernard Levin. And Bernard Levin had all these different discussions with all these different people. And because of his career, he was also able to have a lot of different interviews with very famous and successful people. And one of the things that he wrote was people in countries like ours, and I guess that you could say the United States is a country like his, with people as successful as ours can purchase all sorts of things and have all sorts of comforts and have all sorts of pleasures And we continue to parade them around the circle of our lives, realizing that they just revolve around this hole that cannot be filled. Why are these people rejecting the invitation to heaven? The invitation to the king's banquet for his son's wedding? Why are they missing out? They think they're good. You know, sometimes people will accuse Christianity about being a religion for uneducated people. Oh, it's just for people who don't have the opportunities in life that I have. I'm telling you, I think that Christianity is most prevalent and and, and graspable for people who are in those situations because it's all they have to depend on. And I wonder how many of us are depending on our lives on things that can be taken away in any moment. How many of us have fallen into that trap? How many of us need to turn away from the things that are making us comfortable and instead walk into real peace? Walk with the only one who can really fill that hole in our lives. I mean, you think about it. How privileged do you have to be for someone to come up to you and say, would you like eternal life? Eh, I'm good. (laughs) I think I got this taken care of. And of course, when we see it like this, I mean, heaven or a billion dollars. Eternal life is, of course, better than a billion dollars, but, but here and now, sometimes it's hard to catch that, isn't it? We get distracted with these things. My life is easy. My life is comfortable. I got it figured out. I don't need heaven. I'm indifferent about it. I'm so privileged that maybe I don't need it. I think part of the reason why Christianity is growing like crazy in the poorest nations in the world is because they know where true joy comes from. I tell this story in our Alpha class, but I think that it's important to bring it up here too. It was in 2010, this month, when one of our pastors down in West Des Moines, his name is Ben Mason, he was down in Haiti, and he was on a mission trip when the ground started to shake. It was that earthquake in Haiti in 2010 where over 100,000 people died. As the ground began to shake and everything began to crumble, he went from serving those people to surviving with those people. And suddenly he started to understand what it really might feel like to live there. That this wasn't just a trip for them. This wasn't just a 10-day experience. This was their life. After the earthquake had hit and destructed their homes and taken away all their material possessions and they weren't getting them back, they don't really have a whole lot of insurance down there. People walked across the rubble. They're holding hands and he said that they sang a word over and over again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What did they have? What did they have that we don't have? They have the one thing that can't be taken away from them. 
And I think that they've discovered it because maybe they're not as distracted by the things that we're distracted by. In a country like ours, with people as successful as ours, we can parade around this hole all sorts of material things. None of it will fill that hole. It's bottomless. And, and here's where it gets interesting. It starts kind of innocent, right? Like just kind of ignoring it, just being complacent. But, but it can turn into something as dramatic as when Jesus calls about this hostile example of when, when uh, the, the, the people who are receiving the message abused and insulted and then killed the messengers, the servants who are delivering the invitation. Like these, these two things can turn into hostile control pretty quickly. What do you mean I have to change my life? What do you mean I have to go somewhere else? What do you mean that I'm not getting everything I need right here? And we tell ourselves everything that I'm doing right here, everything that I'm getting right here is all really good stuff, right? I want to point us back to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5 because again, Matthew, he's, he's connecting the dots. And I think that this is so interesting here. In Isaiah chapter 5, it talks about the way that the kingdom of God is supposed to operate. If you could show me the next screen, that would be awesome. It says this, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. He expected a crop of justice from them, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Now, in the Old Testament, God's people, they are identified as Israel. And God's kind of hard on Israel sometimes. In the same way that Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots, is a little bit harder on his athletes than maybe you should be on a team of fourth graders playing flag football. Not that we have any sort of problem with that in central Iowa, people like overhyping youth sports. Right? Nothing like that. God's like, no, like, you're the people that I've chosen for this, to deliver this message into the world. I'm going to let you know how I feel about how you're doing with this thing. And he's telling them, I expect justice out of you, but I'm seeing oppression. I expect righteousness out of you, but I'm seeing violence. You've gotten so complacent. And we see this in the New Testament when people are having arguments with Jesus. They're like, you can't tell us that we're not good enough. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, God can make rocks sons of Abraham. What are you talking about? It's not your heritage that saves you. It's God that saves you. Now, here's what's really interesting about this, because I think that this passage shows us how easy it is for us to fall from something innocent and well-intended into something that could actually be very dark. If you take a look at the Hebrew words there for, go back, if you take a look at the Hebrew, go back a slide, there we go. If you take a look at the Hebrew word for justice, it is mishpat. Everybody say mishpat. mishpat. And the word for oppression is mispak. Everybody say mispak. Do you see how those words sound very similar? If you were to see them in Hebrew, you would see that they actually only have one letter difference between the two of them. And then it's the same thing for righteousness and violence. Righteousness is, everybody go ahead and say that word. It's really hard to say even when it's like, you know, pronounced out for us. Tzidiaka, uh, close. And then Tzidiaka, there's no D in it. It's very, very close, but it's different. Now, I think that this is beautiful. And sometimes maybe we miss out on this and it's kind of not fair for us English readers. But I think that part of the reason why God's word is written in poetry or in this like prophetic way sometimes is so that it actually takes us into this like new space to really open our minds and think about things differently. And it reaches us in a different way. Because Isaiah is actually even using a play on words here to show us what? To show us that maybe sometimes we are just one letter away from becoming the opposite of what we wanted to be. Oh, 
I, I, I want to project justice in the world. But if you're missing that one part that's the most important part, you might actually become an oppressor. I, I want to go for righteousness in this world. But if you're missing that one part that's the most important part, you might become a person of violence. And the way that I think that I would conclude that is to say this. Critics of Jesus can look a lot like followers of Jesus. The temple officials who are so critical of Jesus, they behave very well. They follow the laws of God very well. And on the surface, they would look like someone who follows Jesus, or at least the way that they're supposed to look. But deep down, there's something terribly wrong. And I think that Jesus wants to reach deep beneath the surface. He wants to go deep into that bottomless hole because he is the only one who can fill it. It's heaven's invitation. It is a calling. It's, it's just that. It is an invitation. I think that there is a difference between a calling and a pursuit, right? If it's a pursuit, this is something that I'm trying to achieve. But if it's a calling, it's something that's been brought to me. And I think that in some ways that's a warning and in some ways that is a comfort. Here's the way that it is a warning. Now, be I'm careful when I say things like warning because heaven is not a warning. Heaven is an invitation and it's this beautiful gift. But the warning is don't procrastinate. Like the invitation is here. And we might tell ourselves, oh, I'm going to get to that tomorrow. 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 Will you? Why wait? Heaven's come to us. Why wait? I mean, seriously, why would we wait uh, to live in the world where there's justice and righteousness, but instead just settle for this oppression and violence? Why wait? This isn't something that we procrastinate, but instead it's something that we respond to in the way that those people absolutely should have responded to the king's invitation. But then there's also a comfort to it. And the comfort is that the invitation is not based on luck or performance. It's not something that you like gradually get yourself to. We start to pass certain levels of Christianity and now I'm invited to heaven. The invitations come to you. He made the effort. He made the arrangements. He wrote the card. He put your address on it. He sent it to you. It's not luck. It's not performance. It is based on him and his love for you. That's the longest one that I'll spend time on, the invitation of it's a calling. It's something that actually goes out to us. But the second one is it's a covering. And when I say it's a covering for heaven's invitation, it is grace. It is mercy. I think one of the best ways for us, for us to understand grace and mercy is to see it as this protective blanket that God puts over us. Mercy in that there are bad things in this world that crush us and God comes in and he stops those things. A lot of times we think that mercy is God crushing us and we're saying, God, please stop. He's like, okay, my mercy. No, God doesn't put the bad things on you. We live in a world where bad things fall on us and maybe sometimes we're contributing to those bad things, but God's mercy is that he steps in and he stops them. It's this blanket of mercy. And then there's grace. It's this protection that we don't deserve and yet God freely gives it to us out of his love. It is this covering. Now, see, Jesus continues in this story and he goes to show that it is something that is free and not something that could be earned. It's not just for successful people who seem to have made their way into the kingdom of God, who seem to have earned their way, uh, to, to have paid for their place. But instead, God, but instead, Jesus says, well, the king told the servants then to go out into the street corners and invite everyone else because, well, the people who were originally invited, they didn't come. 
So go ahead, go to the street corners and invite everyone you see. Now in the Greek, what it's saying there for street corners is it's actually the way where the ways cross. And I know that quite maybe some, in some ways means street corners, but what it means is it's where the social, the economic, and the moral crossroads of life all come together. It's the intersection of everyone who's good, everyone who's bad, everyone who follows the law, everyone who doesn't, everyone who's rich, everyone who's poor, everyone who's popular, everyone who's rejected. Go out into that place where they all happen to end up in the same spot because that's where their paths cross. Go to that place and I want you to invite everyone that you see. They brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. Jesus was very clear in this story. There is no discrimination about who gets to be invited into the kingdom of heaven. He's standing in the place where you cannot help but see him. It would be like standing in the middle of Times Square with a sign that says, Yes, you, you are invited. You belong. And this is the part of the story that we absolutely love. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is for everyone and it absolutely is. But if you'll notice, our Bible reading ended right here at verse 10 today, didn't it? But did any of you read on? And it's like, oh no. Can I show you what happened next? Well, I will. It says, he noticed the king then shows up to the party and all these different people, they come and they show up and they're really excited to be there. But then the king shows up and he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothing for a wedding. And that's odd. I mean, for goodness sake, Jesus said, just go ahead and unconditionally invite everybody into this wedding. And now the king's getting a little judgy about what someone's wearing. What's the deal with that? And then you can see after that, the king walks up to the, up to the, the person and says, friend, and he doesn't really treat him like a friend, does he? Instead, it says this. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know why. My seminary professor used to do that. It's kind of creepy now that I think about it. What's going on here? I think that it's actually very loving that God would do this. Like, God's trying to get us to somewhere new. Like, make no mistake about it. Jesus shows up with an invitation to the entire world. Meaning he loves you exactly where you are. And yet he loves you too much to let you stay in that place. Let me put it this way. God loved us where we were so much that God refused to let us stay as we were. Don't get me wrong. Just as you are, God loves you. God's not loving you for the person you will become, but God loves you so much that he is willing to transform you into something you never believed about yourself. Someone with confidence, not because of the things that you do, but because of the value that he's placing you with his unconditional love. He wants you to be transformed, to be a person who's not simply seeking for the things that they can take, but instead lives a life that looks for opportunities to share and to give. I mean, think about it like this. None of us actually want the world to stay as it is, do we? None of us, I I don't think that's possible. None of us want this. I mean, think about all the different people in the world that God loves. I mean, he loves every single person and that starts to get a bit offensive because God loves criminals. God loves murderers. God loves corrupt and crooked politicians and business people. God loves people who rip people off. God loves parents who have hurt their children. And we would say to all those people, you need to change. And God loves us where we are, 
but he loves us way too much to let us stay there. In the kingdom of heaven, we're made new, we're made perfect. God wants us to be dressed like that. Here's the way that we can see it in scripture. God's transforming us into something new. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Then in Galatians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What is he saying? He's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it produces something new. When God meets you with his love, you absolutely need to expect that something different is going to happen in your life. We don't stay the same. When we come into contact with God's love, it's this contagious thing and it impacts every part of our life. We have no choice but to change. And it's not just talking about the behavioral things. You know, the things that make us look like Christians, but interestingly, the critics of Christ look very similar to that. He wants to transform us from the inside out so that the things that we produce are actually produced by him. Along, among the many different ways that we can live our lives, here are two of them. One of the ways is I can say, I'm living my life for God, and I'll get really tired doing that. Or maybe I would allow God to live through me, and I could see the goodness of his love produced through my life. Here's another way that we could put it. Love wants what's best for the beloved. God wants what's best for you. And what's best for us is not to stay away from his wedding banquet, not to stay away from his kingdom because we're just distracted by something that's convenient and comfortable. He wants what is truly best for us. So now if we take a look at that proper clothing that the king wants for his friend, it starts to change our understanding of it. This proper clothing is not something that he could do on his own, something that he could make on his own by his own behavior and by his own efforts. I mean, think about the difference in the story between how Jesus talked about the first people being invited and the second people being invited. The first people, they knew about it for a very, very, very long time. This is Israel. These are the people that God said, I'm going to give my message, my savior to the world through you. You've known about it for a long time. It's been on your fridge for forever. RSVP, yes, yes. And then there are these people that the servants just go out and invite in the middle of the street. They just found out about it. And here they come. Did any of them have time to go home? I mean, like, did any of them have time to prepare themselves for this? No, they just left and they just went. And then when the king walks up to this person, he says, friend, where are your clothes? He has two options for things to say here. He could have said, I don't have any, or he could have said, I didn't really want to go do it. But he doesn't say either of those things, does he? It just says he's quiet. Now, in those days, the custom would have been, and also according to the way that Jesus told this story, it's very easy to picture that this king would have would have hand-provided every single person with wedding clothes as they came to the door. This is what you wear. I cannot imagine. I've been in a few weddings for my friends. I cannot imagine if they provided me with a suit to wear as I stood next to them on the biggest day of their life. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to wear jeans and a, and a t-shirt. They'd be offended. I gave this to you. What are you doing? And I believe that in this story, Jesus is saying, it's not your clothing that you're putting on. 
It's mine. This is clothing that was purchased by God. This is clothing that is provided for us, not clothing that we could earn. Now, this is getting toward the end of Matthew's gospel account. And this is the last time that Jesus is going to specifically teach to people outside of his disciples. After this, Jesus is going to go to talking to his disciples about the end times. And then he's going to be put on trial and he's going to die. I mean, we're getting very close to the end. And I think that Matthew is intentionally placing this story toward the end. Because just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 27, it's talking about Jesus and the clothes he wears. It says that they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. He lost his clothing. The stuff they put on him is a cloak of shame. This king wears a crown of thorns. Why? As they remove his clothing, he's giving it to us. He is giving his righteousness and his justice to the people who oftentimes put violence and oppression into this world. His wedding clothing has been provided to us as he was stripped. We are clothed. And this kind of puts the story together, doesn't it? Because there are two different camps that could try to pull Jesus to to their side on it. You've got maybe the fundamentalists, the legalists who would say, all right, we got to do it the exact right way. You know, I mean, you, you got to do it the exact right way and follow the, everything perfectly and, and earn your way into the kingdom of God. And you could find different parts in this story if you took it out of context. And say, yeah, that's, that's how you do it. And then you could maybe have the relativists, right? And say, well, you know, like, I mean, since God has grace and mercy, nothing else matters. And you just never make any effort at all because it doesn't matter. But of course it does. Because absolutely, we are saved and welcomed into the kingdom of God by grace and by mercy. It is a free gift that we could not earn on our own. But why is it free? God's gift of grace, his free gift, show me the next slide. God's free gift of grace is at the expense of Jesus' life. In In the prophecies that Matthew is referred to over and again throughout his gospel account, It says that Jesus would gladly take this. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't fun. You can read other parts about Jesus and in the gospel accounts where he's having these prayers with guys like, hey, there's another way. I'll take it. This is going to hurt. But it says that when he sees that many would be counted righteous by his work, he would be satisfied and glad. Jesus is happy to give up his clothing for us. Jesus is happy to be stripped down, to be deconstructed so that we could be reconstructed, made new again. Quickly, I'll finish with this. Heaven's invitation, we've already talked about it. It's a calling, it's a covering. And then finally, it's already one. Please, if you've heard me throughout this sermon, you're like, okay, well, one day, or maybe you're feeling like you're on the edge of your seat, or I hope, you don't have to hope you've been given hope. You don't have to wonder it's already been won. 
It's already won, and therefore we get to rejoice. This isn't from the book of Matthew, but it's in another book in the New Testament. This is in Romans chapter 6. And it tells us that when Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive through Christ. So many of us are living as if we don't know the final outcome. And I know sometimes that's just the case that we have to live in. I mean, it's difficult and it's hard. But Jesus invites us to live with this certainty and to live with this confidence. This picture that I have up here on the left there, uh, this was a Scotsman and he was a chaplain during World War II. His name was uh, Murdo McDonald. So if you're wondering, is he Scottish? His name is Murdo McDonald. So, um, and he ended up as a prisoner of war in one of the concentration camps in, uh, in, um, in World War II. And in his particular place where he was being held hostage, there was a fence and they would separate the Scots from the U.S. Americans and a few other people as well. And at this fence, they could get together and they could talk about their life experiences, but they were constantly being watched by the guards. And the German guards would watch them and try to keep them apart and make sure that they weren't sharing news with one another that they, were, that they weren't supposed to share. And the German guards, they could speak English. And the German guards, they could speak German. The German guards, they could speak uh, French. They could speak all these different languages. But the one language that they found out that the German guards couldn't speak was Gaelic, which was the native tongue for Scots. And somebody from the American side found out uh, about that. And he could speak Gaelic. And one day they met at the fence. And he delivered this message. He said, hey, those guards don't know it yet. But Germany surrendered. The war is about to be over. And it's already won. McDonald talked about how after that moment, they were still in prison for about four or five more days. But their entire perspective totally changed. They were still being watched. They still had guns pointed at them. But they had this ability to rejoice because they knew that it was over. They knew that the victory had been won. And sure enough, four or five days later, they woke up, the German guards were gone, and all of the gates were opened. You see, but they were already living as if they were free, even though they still had the cages around them. And why? How? Because there was this news that set them free. And that same news is true for us. And it's on a way bigger scale. Yes, even a bigger scale than something like a massive world war. God has set us free, not just from the bondage of the physical things in this world and the societal things in this world, but the cosmic prison of death, the cosmic prison of sin. And so many of us are living our lives like we don't know the outcome. You do know the outcome. Jesus Christ died. He rose again and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's sitting there advocating for you sharing his victory with you. Let's start to live like that. Let's start to have that kind of joy. How can you test to see if you have this kind of joy? Do the simple things in life excite you? Or do you have to be so madly impressed just to have a good day? I mean, my goodness, I think about the difference between me and my dog, Denver. My dog, Denver, can eat the same thing every single day, two times a day for his entire life. And he's so excited and thrilled every single time he sees the closet door open where there's food and kibble again. Are you serious? Meanwhile, my wife asks me, hey, where should we go for dinner? I'm like going up and down Lincoln. I'm like, nothing sounds good. Like... Do we have joy in these little things? 
Because in the end, these little things, they're not really that big of a thing compared to the great thing that Jesus has won for us. Don't get me wrong, the details of your life matter, but let us live with an eternal mindset. An eternal mindset that says the victory is won so that changes how we live here. We don't have to be people who hang on and grab and actually put out more violence and oppression in the world. We can actually be people who fight for justice who bring about righteousness, who redeem relationships because you know you've been invited, you know how the story ends and it changes how you live here and now. I don't want to leave us on a cliffhanger, so let me tell you how the story ends. In Revelation chapter 7, excuse me, Revelation chapter 19, it tells us just exactly how it ends and it brings up another wedding banquet. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to Jesus. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. That's us. She has been given the finest pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. We're putting on this new clothing. We're putting on this righteous robe, not because of our own works, but because Jesus stripped down himself to hand it to us to give it to us. He says, you put on my clothing. I will cover for you. I will cover for you. You can rejoice. Let us live with people who have the end in sight. Jesus promises us in Matthew chapter 28, as we finish the series, Matthew connects the dots. He promises us at the end of Matthew's gospel account, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What if we lived like that? went to a small college football game one time and there was a team that was up by like five touchdowns. It wasn't even close. And then as they're kicking the extra point, the opposing team, they block the extra point. They take the ball, they run it all the way back and they get like two points for that blocked extra point and returning it. And then the team that's winning comes back to the sideline. They've all got their heads down. They're disappointed. They're bummed out. And their coach said something that I've never been able to forget since then. I think it was in high school when I saw this. He said, hey, you're winning. Act like it. I mean, my goodness, Christians. Church of Jesus. Can we act like we're winning? And not in a, ha ha, you stink to the rest of the world, bragging, holding it over people's heads. I mean, let's act like we know we're winning. Let's act like we know we can't lose. Let's act like we know that no matter how much we give, no matter how much we share, no matter how much we love, there is still an eternal mint waiting for us in heaven to give us more. He keeps on producing more. Let's live like we know we're winning. Let's live like we know we cannot lose. Let's be people who see God's good fruit produced through our lives, giving righteousness and justice. And while one day we will see the ultimate victory of heaven, we'll see more and more glimpses of heaven here in our community and around the world. The victory is won. You are invited to the banquet for the king's son. The invitations are here. Get it off the fridge. Stop waiting to respond. Go. We can go. Amen. Let's stand it up. Let's sing a song to finish up.